Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. I have to say, I agree with Murph. I love this season. Uh, I love all the things that come with it, uh, especially I'm a huge football fan. I love college football. I love pro football. I'd, I'd have you pray for my fantasy football team if I thought God cared about it. But uh, yeah, just all, all the different parts of the season. I, I love what it means for our church as well. Uh, it is great every week for us to be able to collectively gather in this room, but it's during this season, I think church becomes church. When, when you get into a life group, when, when you get into a Bible study or class or, or with that, the women's group, women of the word, mops, all the different ways to plug in. For me personally, I'm really excited about this Thursday morning with Better Man. Uh, we're launching it. We'll be right in this room. I'll be teaching it. I, I met with a national leader of Better Man this week. And it's just fun to be a part of what God's doing through it. We were a beta site for it in the spring. And they want us to film this fall. Uh, we'll be one of four sites, and then they're going to use it to, to help churches all over the country. Uh, I'm excited to invite all the guys, any of your friends, right here, 6 o'clock. I know that's early. But the great thing about 6 o'clock, we're not competing with anything else in our life except sleep. And so we, we can do that. I, here's what I know. I've taught a lot of this material for years. Every time I teach it, it just makes me better. It's like this little gift during the season to my wife and kids because it just forces me to wrestle with the things I need to wrestle with as a man. And so I, I, I'd encourage you. I, I've seen it happen in other guys' lives. Come be a part of it. We'll be right here Thursday morning, 6 a.m. And I, I would encourage you during this season, it takes that effort extra effort to, to get into a group or to step out with it. It's the effort that's worth it. It's when church really becomes church. More than just a worship service, but really your church home. We take a minute and pray, pray for this season, pray for this message as well. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to uh, just be with this church. I love venture. I love what you're doing in this place. Lord, I thank you that you, in your goodness, you created it. You created church universal. Lord, as we wrestle with some of the issues around it, I pray that you would give us a sense of just clarity and humility and openness to what you want to do. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can see in your notes, we're, we're launching this series, Why Church? And if you're a longtime church attender, you may even look at that and go, why do a church on, why do a series on Why Church? And yet, if, if you look at what's happening nationally, I think there's some issues that we need to wrestle with as a church. I think there's valid questions people have that sometimes we just don't dive into. Especially when you look at the trends of what's happening. You know, you look at church attendance. You go back to 1999. Church attendance in the U.S., membership, maybe not attendance, but membership was at least 70%. And, and that's not an outlier. It wasn't a, just a spike year. It, it was pretty consistent up to that point. In the last 20 years, we've seen the greatest shift in that that we've ever seen in our country. Now, in 2019, it's at 50%. Now, for those of us who live in the Bay Area, you might go, man, 50% would be great because it's much lower here. But it shows you the national trend. Unless you just think, well, okay, yeah, people out there who's not a part of the church you know, they're not coming as much. Actually, the greatest movement of that are young people who've been raised in the church. In fact, 
Dave Kinneman and, and Mark Matlock, they've just released a book, Faith in Exile. And it, it describes this movement for 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in the church and who grew up as Christians. And as they've surveyed that group across our country, they break it down into four categories. First category you see of 18 to 29, they grew up Christian, by the way. This isn't just people that were outside of it. 22% of them identify themselves as prodigals. They wouldn't use that term. They would just say ex-Christians, which I don't even have the faith anymore. Next category are those who are nomads. Now these would, they'd say, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't attend church. And, and so they're just totally unchurched. If you add that together, 52% of 18 to 29 year olds who grew up Christian in church are either not attending or don't even identify. Now, largest category are the habitual churchgoers, 38%. And before you get too excited about that, to qualify for this, you attend church once a month. And, and probably the most disturbing part of their study as they dug into this group a little bit more, they found that the actual belief and behavior patterns match these groups. Not much difference. Last category, they call resilient disciples. It's only 10%. Now, the great news about this, that term resilient really matches. There, there's actually a group of young people, they're getting stronger in their faith. They're more passionate about Christ. More passionate about the word and wanting to, to really believe it and make it apply to their life. So it's real encouraging to see that movement. I think this group's going to lead us. But, but when you start adding up all these numbers, and again, I'll remind you, these are the ones who grew up in our churches. You know that term, that line from Apollo 13, when they say, Houston, we have a problem? I would say, church, we have a problem. And I think one of the problems is sometimes we don't talk about the real questions these groups have. The real questions we hear from people when you go, hey, I'd love for you to be a part of church. And, and they do kind of go, why would I do that? Why be in church? And so today, it's a little bit different message. I've just looked at three categories that I've, I've organized them in. Kind of questions around why believe? Why believe like that in this day and age, in a rational age? Why belong to something that's organized, organized religion? And then ultimately, why bother? Life is so busy as is. So look at that first category. Why believe? Why believe? And, and you hear it from people in different ways. When, when you talk to them about church, they'll kind of go, you know, I'm, I'm more of a person of reason. I'm not really a person of faith. A lot of times when people find out I'm a pastor, it's always almost humorous. The, the way they'll, they'll say to me, they'll go, well, I'm so glad your faith works for you. They don't mean to be patronizing. It just is. I'm so glad, you know, you have your, your faith walk. That, I'm so, that works for you. I'm just not one of those kind of people. And, and really what they're saying is, you know, I can't check my brain at the door and I can't drink the Kool-Aid. I'm a person that's more reasonable than that. And, and in a lot of ways, we need to recognize we in the church are guilty sometimes in setting up these categories. That, that we've been scared in the past. There was whole movements at time where the church was so scared of what was discovered scientifically and what was happening through reason and, and, and in university and all with that, that, that our temptation was just kind of pull back and be a holy little huddle 
And we hold on to the truth of our Bibles. As long as we have that, we don't need anything else. Now, hear me. Man, I live my life according to this Bible. I absolutely think it's the truth. But I think there's a greater principle that we've lost at times. Here's a principle I want you to grab on. All truth is God's truth. All of it's his. Now, I didn't come up with this, by the way. <laughs> this goes all the way back. You, you can see Augustine said this in the 300s. And Calvin said it. Aquinas said it. Luther said it. I mean, you, you walk through the history of the church. This, this was a, a foundational principle that the church grabbed. And here's what it meant in that. Yes, the Bible is absolutely God's revealed truth, but also the creation is his revealed truth. And what we discover in the world is revealed truth. And, and as we discover it, we don't need to be scared of it. The church should be the least fearful. We should be the ones who most pursue it. We should be willing to ask the hard questions. Because all of it's God's truth. Now, you may be sitting here going, yeah, but Tim, sometimes, especially science and, and what's in the Bible, it just feels like there's a contradiction there. What's going on in that? If he's a consistent God, it's all his truth. Why would there, we ever reach that point? And it's really one of two things that are happening. Either one, it's bad science. And if you look in the history of the last 2,000 years, there's been some bad science. I don't care who you are, you got to recognize there's just been bad movements that later was proved to be wrong. And then there's also been bad interpretation where we kind of got locked down on a position and we were just so sure. And later as you discover what the authors are really saying, say what the, what the Bible's really saying in it, you go, okay, wait a second. Maybe we got sideways there a little bit. Maybe we're trying to make it say something it's not give you an example where both of them came together, both bad science and bad interpretation. You go back to the 1600s, the prevailing scientific view of the world was that the earth was the center of the universe. And, and it was based on Aristotle's theories developed by Ptolemy. The Ptolemaic system was the scientific way of thought that had the earth in the center of the universe, the universe was a closed system around it, and everything revolved around the earth in that. Now, the church came along with their interpretation as well, and the church said, yes, that absolutely matches the way we read the Bible, because the Bible talks about the sun rising and the sun setting, and so if the sun is moving across the sky, then the earth must be at the center, and everything's revolving around that. Problem with both the science of it and the interpretation of it, that's not reality. And, and so you had Copernicus first, and then later, specifically, Galileo, in the 17th century, who, who, who really was willing to stick his neck out and go, that's not how it works. The earth is moving around the sun. And, and the Roman Catholic Church issued a, an official condemnation of him. Here's the ironic part. Galileo was a devout Christian. In, in fact, it was his Christianity that fueled his pursuit of truth, pursuit of what God was doing in the world. In fact, I love the line that he says in it because he brings that balance so well. He says, God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his word. He said, we look at the work of what God's doing in the world. We know him through that. We should worship him through that. We also know him through the doctrine that he's revealed in this. And, and in that, you got this case where we locked down so much. Now, what was the church doing in that? It felt threatened because it, it felt like that literal language of sunrise, sunset 
meant that it had to be that way. It was a bad interpretation. When the biblical writers are using sunrise, sunset, they're not trying to describe how the universe is set up. In fact, you can point to a number of other passages that actually do point to the universe as we know it now. That was just the language of description of the day. It's the language of use. We do the same thing, by the way. Lest you camp out on that and go, see, it's not right. It's not scientific. Watch the news tonight and your weathermen. I bet they're going to say at some point during the broadcast, sunrise tomorrow and sunset. Now, is it because they've thrown out science? No. It's just the language of the day. I say this because I think we have so set it up that you have to choose one or the other. And sometimes the church is guilty of that. All truth is God's truth. Uh, and I love the way that scientist Troy Van Voorhuis, he, he's a professor of chemistry at MIT. He, he writes about it. How, how do you make faith and science work together in that? He says, of course, science helps us understand how the universe works. What is not as clear is what role faith plays. Some would argue that this question that faith ought to be kept away from anything, it will be disproved. But this argument assumes there's only one explanation for everything. There's really multiple layers of meaning as we look at it. I like how he puts it. He said, you could ask me, Troy, why is your shirt purple? I could answer this in a scientific way. My shirt is purple because there's a high concentration of 6-6 debromo indigo in the fibers that was used to weave it. I could even test this hypothesis by attempting to remove the dye from the shirt. I could demonstrate the molecular reason why my shirt is purple. However, I could offer another explanation. My shirt is purple because my wife thinks I look quite nice and purple. He said, both are true. I would argue, and just hear me, because sometimes, and some of you may have been told this, that if you're a person of faith, you have to throw out reason. You have to throw out investigation. All truth is God's truth. In fact, I would go a step further and say that everyone lives by faith. We all live by faith at some level. Even if you're a person absolutely committed to scientific inquiry, absolutely committed to unless it's proven to you, you don't believe it, you operate every day with a level of faith, believing something you can't personally prove. By faith, you drove here today. You trusted that whoever programmed the traffic lights, you trusted that other drivers would drive according to the laws. You trust a GPS to take you where to go. You trust that the food that you'll eat today, that somebody verified that it's not spoiled, that it's not poisoned in that. There's a level of trust and faith that we have to have to operate in a society. And, and you may look at that and you go, yeah, but Tim, that's a big leap from those things that have been proven and verified to actually believing there's a God. I, I just can't believe there's a God out there. And, and again, I, I would ask you, you may think I've taken a leap of faith in believing. I think it takes a greater leap to not believe. I really do. You know, I'm reminded of the words of G.K. Chesterton. He said, when men choose to not believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. And I'll see a guy like Richard Dawkins who argues violently and forcefully against the existence of God. I mean, he says unequivocally, there absolutely can't be a God. And then somebody asks him, well, wait, Richard do you think that this world might just be like a big computer simulation? 
that none of it's real? And he'll get that question and go, yeah, that might be true. And I, I hear Chesterton's words. See, when, when you dismiss God, it's not that you believe in nothing. You suddenly become open to anything. And, and I would ask you just the leap to go to that place that you could just dismiss God. That's a pretty big leap. Especially when you think of what it's based on. I mean, if you're basing it strictly on what we know about the world, it's interesting to me how Michael Gillian points out, today's astronomers have come down believing there's, there's actually within our galaxy and galaxy clusters, they are pregnant with some sort of exotic material that's invisible to us. I don't know if you've read about this at all. They call it dark matter. And this dark matter, they, they can't quite find it. It's as elusive. They've used everything from gamma ray telescopes to cryogenic subatomic particle monitors deep in minds. They're trying to find it. They just know it's there, but they can't quite find it. On top of that, astrophysicists, as they study the effects of gravity in the universe, they've identified what they call dark energy that's there. Now, here's what's fascinating. They estimate that 68% of the universe is dark energy, 68%. They estimate on top of that, that another 27% is dark matter. Now, put the two of those two together. 95% of the universe is hidden to us. Everything that we build that we know of scientifically and build our belief system is based on the 5% that we actually can observe. That's pretty phenomenal. And in that, with those numbers, are you really willing to say, we know for a fact there is no God? Based on the 5% we can see? And somebody last night asked me, Tim, are you teaching though just God and the gaps? And I go, I'm really not. But I hate to break it to you, 95% is a pretty big gap. It's not just this little sliver we're looking at. See, see in that, and, and I know you may hear that and you go, yeah, but I just struggle with miracles because miracles can't be reproduced. They can't be scientifically proven. And I would agree with you. You cannot prove any miracle scientifically. You cannot force it and reproduce it and do it again. But likewise, you can't disprove it. And and you may look at it and you go, yeah, but a God who would do miracles, if there is a God and he's out there and he's all powerful and he's of the level that he's described himself as, for me, it's not that hard when I think of the gap between him and us, his actions in our universe and time and space are, of course, you're going to feel miraculous. Some of it will be very exceptional. I mean, today I could go be the God of the anthill. When you look at me over the ants, I could be their God today. I could do miraculous things for them. Literally think about it. I could stand over the anthill and drop food from heaven. I could split open their home. I could flood them. I could smite them. I'd be very godlike because of the distance between ants and me from their perception. Now here's the reality. Man, the distance between us and God. We all have a level of faith. All of us. And, and I'm not expecting you to check your brain at the door. I'm really not. I'm not a- asking you to take the leap. 
In fact, it may be too far a leap. I would agree. It's just too far a leap to him. You know, here's the interesting thing. God agrees with that too. So he made the leap. And, and, and hear me, because this is what my faith rests on. Guys, I, I'm a very curious person. I have my share of doubts. And so when my mind starts racing and the doubts are there, you know what I come back to again and again and again? Not that I have to conceptually think about someone out there. I go back to the person who is willing to come here. And he lived in human history. Jesus Christ was born. And he lived in real time and in real space. And he had real witnesses. And there's real documentation. And he lived and died and rose again. And that event, whether you believe it or not, that is the most scrutinized event in human history. That one event is. More than any other, it's been scrutinized. It's yet to be disproved. It still stands over time. And, and so for me, when I find myself in those, those wrestling with those hard places where, where I'm going, wait, it looks like science says this, and, and, and how does that match with it? I, I, I step back first and I go, let me build on what I know. And I know that I know that I know Jesus Christ lived and he died and he rose. Everything builds off of that. And I'm not alone in that, by the way. I love Paul agrees with me. This great preacher of the church, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then all preaching is useless. He says, basically, don't get together as a church and let somebody preach if you don't really think he was risen from the grave. Churches that are out there, I, I really don't understand them. There's some churches they don't actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. dead. And I'm going, don't you realize it's useless what you're doing? If, if he wasn't raised from the dead, dead, your faith is useless. I love how he just puts it on the line. But if he was, if he did, that changes everything. You ask me why I believe, I believe because of Jesus. I start there. And then I build the rest out. And, and I would just encourage you, if you're wrestling with it, would you please just investigate it for your own? Would you investigate it to a level that you would go, I'm going to wrestle with that because everything unspools from that. Now, maybe you're here and you go, Tim, the, the why believe is not my issue. I, I believe. My problem is why belong? Why belong to an institutional church, an institutional religion. And every so often I'll hear somebody, they'll throw out this statement. You, you, you may have heard it where they go, oh yeah, organized religion, institutional church, religion. More people have been killed in human history in the name of religion than anything else. And, and if I was an NFL coach, they have these little red flags. It's their challenge flag. I would pull it out. Challenge that one. That is patently false. That is not true. In fact, next week, I'll, I'll give you the numbers on it. I'll tell you why, it's patently false. I'm gonna wait till next week. We'll tie it in with it. This week though, for those that you, you sit there and go, yeah, okay, maybe that's false, but, but organized religion, I, why, it feels like that's all it is. That's all you guys care about, the organization and that. And again, I think we've got to own part of that. Sometimes we get so concentrated on doing our church, we forget about the church. We forget about how unique it is and how God set it up. Here's what I mean in that. When, when you think about church, church is both an organization, it is, but it's also an organism. It's unique. It's like nothing else on this planet. That all these people from different walks of life, and the scripture says male and female, 
slave and free. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic, any race, any tribe. When, when God launched the church, he, he didn't just do it as, all right, let me just have these little clusters and you guys organize yourselves. He did it as this organism. He describes it literally as a body, a body connected to Jesus, and we're all connected to each other. And that goes beyond any one church. It's talking about all the churches of this city, all the churches around the world. We're organized as an organism. The way he does this is through his spirit. Look how Ephesians puts it. I love how Paul describes it. He's describing church. He says there's one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, he's over us, but he's also working through all and in all. This, this unique organism that he's called together. And over the next couple of weeks, I, I want to unpack what that really means. I think we miss the insight and in how unique it really is. And when we do, we just want to make it about the organization. Now, now hear me. Notice though I said it is an organism, but it's also an organization. You see that in the book of Acts. He unleashes church with the Holy Spirit in everyone. And then immediately they have to start organizing because God wants church to be effective. And, and churches have organized in all different ways. I mean, there's mega churches like this one. There's small churches. There's house churches. I've been a part of all those. They all have unique strengths in it. There's very formal high churches, have high liturgy and very strong ceremony. And then there's low church, very casual, where when you greet each other, you fist bump. It's in all those things. One of my favorite things about being in the Bay Area, I've got friends who pastor churches all over the city and I love them and I want them to flourish. We have to organize. There has to be a strategy. There has to be a program. There has to be things that we're focused on. There has to be form and function. There has to be budgets. Now, when I say that, you immediately, some people, your first objection comes forward. There it is. Money. And I'll hear this. Oh, yeah, of course, church. You're all about the money. That's all they do in church is talk about giving money. And you're after my money. There's a part of it where I go, if you come to church, you come to this church. We took an offering today, so I can't pretend like we didn't. We will. We'll talk about money. We'll call you to give money. The Bible does. In fact, money is one of the most frequent topics in all the Bible. I mean, almost more than anything else. Now, why is that? Because God's broke? No. Because he knows us. And he knows how much we actually struggle with this more than we like to admit. In fact, I love the way Jesus put it because it's just so insightful. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He just hits it on the head. He goes, you guys, you get so connected to it. You're connected to your money more than you like to admit at a heart level. That's why as soon as you bring it up in church, everybody starts getting tight. Everybody in the room just starts getting a little tighter. Where's he going with money? Why? Because our hearts are connected and sometimes we feel guilty about it and, and we don't want to talk about it. But God talks about it. Why? Because he doesn't want to see our life shipwrecked over it. He knows how it has a, a way of going so deep in it. And so he calls us to give. In fact, Jesus' words, Acts chapter 20, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And so as a church, if you come here, we, we will call you to give. 
In fact, I, as I read through scripture, I, I think that, that there's a level around 10% we're called to give. Now, even as I say that, I, again, everybody gets tight and you're like, oh, I feel guilty. We're not doing that. I, he, hear me. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to, man, we're going to raise giving today. I, I'm just saying that because I think God said it at that level. At 10%, we all feel it. You just, you're, you'll feel the sacrifice there, no matter how much you make. And I think it's also at that, that level where you start getting free from it too. And that was God's design. And I'd encourage you, no matter where you are, maybe you can't give anything now. As you start moving toward that, you'll start feeling that freedom in it. And I'd encourage you to do it even if you never gave a dime here. If you didn't, you'll feel freedom in giving in that. Now, I hope you'd give here. I hope you'd get excited about what we're doing and the vision of it. We only operate by the generosity of the people here. And so we're so thankful for it. And you, you need to know, I don't know what anybody gives. We have accounting teams. They keep up with all that. I, I, I just, I might, if I, if I knew, I might get real impressed if you gave a lot. Um, and, and even in that, though, you might give a lot and it's not sacrificial for you because you make a lot. Or I might overlook it if you gave a little when actually it's a huge sacrifice. Now, God pays attention. He's not oppressed by amounts. I mean, good grief, when your streets are gold, you're hard-pressed to impress God with the, how much you gave. He is impressed by percentages. In fact, one of the only times Jesus actually pointed out is there was a woman who gave the smallest amount possible, less than a penny, but it was all she had. And Jesus stopped and he goes, whoa, that is worth paying attention to. We'll call you to give here, because Scripture does. And, and for some of you, no matter what I say here, everything I've just said even the last few minutes, you're like, I don't want to hear it. Church is just about money. I'm just convinced in it. And, and can I throw my challenge flag on that just for a second? Just talk honest with you. Because sometimes I get sick of hearing that. I mean, if we really were all about money, wouldn't we operate differently? Just think about it for a minute. Some of you, you've been coming here a long time. Lots of times you've never given anything. We're thankful you're here. I hope God starts moving in your heart, but I'm thankful you're here. And when you pulled in today, when you went to the parking lot, did anybody charge you for parking? When you dropped your kids off, I mean, they're going to be watched by adults who've been background screening and trained for it. Did anybody at the door say, now how will you pay for this child care? Have a credit card machine right there. Have we ever taken tickets at the door? I mean, just stop for a minute. And I know you go, well, it's just church. Does anything else operate that way? I mean, if you went to the Niners game, I encourage you, pull up to the Niners game. Ask them where the visitor parking is. Tell them it's supposed to be right near the gate. Real convenient. And it's free, by the way. I mean, start going to Warriors games. I mean, if you started going to Warriors games, you just kind of showed up and they said, hey, where's your ticket? And you go, you know, we're just going to visit this season. We're going to attend, you know, games this season. See if we like it. If we like it, we might start buying tickets next season. I mean, who watches your kids for free? Maybe Ikea. Ikea will, I'll say that. But they're going to try to send you home with some big piece of furniture in a box about this big and 8,000 pieces. Guys, we're thankful you're here. I, I just don't think that one holds. 
I will say there is one, though, that does hold up, and, and I think we have to be honest. When you think about why I belong, and, and this is when I hear from people, they go, I've been hurt by church. Man, I, I went to church in my greatest need, and people looked down on me, or they judged me. They gossiped about me. I trusted a pastor, and he betrayed my trust. I've been hurt by it. And a lot of people, they'll, they'll immediately go, it's just full of hypocrites. It's hypocrites. Everybody acts like they got their whole life together, but what's really going on inside didn't match up. I don't want to be a part of that. And, and there's a reality we have to face in this. And, and I, I just, there is this. It's this hard part of being church. Here's the hard part. God created his church out of a bunch of broken people. All of us. We are broken people who've been saved by a beautiful God. And sometimes our brokenness gets in the way of his beauty. And I know that. I'll just encourage you, Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. He really didn't. In fact, the people he was strongest with were hypocrites. He spoke out against them. And Matthew 23 is just this, one of my favorite chapters because he's so strong. He's addressing the, the Pharisees, the religious people of his day. Look, look at one of the verses in it. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are the people everybody else looked up to because they thought they had their act together. Look what Jesus said. He goes, you're hypocrites. He just calls it like it is. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but the inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside may be clean also. He says, you guys are hypocrites. You're so focused. Your life is like a cup and you clean it and you clean it out here so everybody thinks you're so clean and inside is still dirty. And I think that's what a lot of people go, yes, that's how I feel. Now, notice what Jesus didn't say in this passage, though. I will point this out. He didn't say, yeah, you clean the outside and the inside's dirty, so you just need to forget all of it. Just go live your life. Be dirty inside and out as long as you're your authentic self. You're real. That's all you need to do. He doesn't say that. Jesus actually says something a little more radical. He said, what if the inside was clean? What if you let this beautiful God do something beautiful in you? And as he starts turning this to look more like him, then it starts coming out of me so that we treat each other and we love each other the way that he's loved us. If you've been hurt by the church in the past, I want you to hear me. I've worked over 30 years in church. And I just want you to know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for times you were gossiped about. I'm sorry where truth was used as a club and you were beat up by it. I'm sorry where all you felt was judgment. You were going through your hardest time in life and instead of everybody moving in, everybody pulled back on you. I'm sorry where pastors have abused their power. And betrayed the trust. I'm sorry for the racism that we struggled with in the church. I'm sorry where we didn't treat you with honesty and respect. And just tell you honestly about our brokenness. 
and what God was doing despite it in us. I really am sorry for the pain that church may have caused you. But hear me. That pain is real, and I don't want to diminish it, but pain has a way of shaping our perspective for the future. That the real pain of the past now keeps me from seeing life as it could be. I think about my own childhood. You know, after my dad died, we didn't have a lot of money. And there was this kind older dentist, Dr. Lloyd, who did our dental care a lot of times for free. Just a kind man. Only thing about him, though, was he was a little old school. I'll just say this. And several times, I, I just remember as a kid, he would find a cavity, and he'd feel him find that cavity, and then he would say these words, oh, there's a little cavity here, but you know, it's really not that deep. I don't even think you need any anesthetic on this one. I'll never forget. I mean, one time he had a molar in the back and he gets the drill out, no shot, no anesthetic, and he starts drilling. And I mean, I was white knuckling it. I'm grabbing it. And he drilled. I can still hear the drill. Finally, he got through and he said, oh, see, that wasn't so bad. And I'm like, if you're holding the drill. I'm going to tell you, when I became an adult, I was a little scared about dentists. I'll never forget the first time I went to a dentist as an adult and he found a cavity and I'm like, oh, crud. And then he said, hey, uh, yeah, we, we, we need to fill this. I'm going I'm to give you a little gas, knock the edge off, and then I'll give you a shot. I'm like, gas? <laughs> and then, then he cranked the gas up. And I mean, I'm telling you, once the gas started going, I was like, drill all of them, baby. <laughs> I mean, this is good. What if I had allowed the pain of my childhood to keep me from going to see dentist? What if the pain of your broken relationships in your past has convinced you that no one could love you and you could have a good relationship in the future? What if the pain of church that was real pain and we have to own as a church but your perception has been so shaped by it. It's blocking the beautiful thing that God could do. I'd encourage you, belong. Final thing I want to leave us with is, why bother? Why bother in a day and age when we're busy and there's so much going on and all with that? And, and it's easy to just stay home. I mean, you can do church in your pajamas. I mean, you got a cup of coffee there on your sofa. Some of you right now, you're doing that. All right. Hey, we're glad you're there. Not condemning. It's easy to do. And, and I would say, I'm glad we have the digital tools we have. But here's the point. Digital church is a good supplement. It's a poor substitute, though. It's good. Maybe I'm traveling. Maybe I'm white. Maybe I can't get out. Maybe I, I understand that as a supplement. But when it becomes a substitute, it's gone beyond what it was ever meant to be. Because we need each other. And this isn't just true about just streaming services. I'd say this with all of life. We've become digital in life. Our friendships, our relationships, all of it, now through our digital tools. 
And it's interesting when you look at the trends in our country. Look at what adults would say. Adults are twice as likely to say they're lonely than they were 10 years ago. One out of five adults describe themselves as lonely. These numbers keep going up with it. And we've actually let ourselves become that way in our thinking about church and relationships there. Navigators just did a study. Look at a couple of these. They said 41% of Christians say, I believe my spiritual life is entirely private. 37% of them said, I want to be discipled on my own. Now, I hate to break it to you, there is no such thing as solo discipleship. It doesn't work that way. But we're tempted to pull back at it. And, and, and as you look at it, now one of the things, churches, people have always struggled with this. Hebrews 10 points this out. I mean, a couple of thousand years ago, he, he's saying, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good work. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Even 2,000 years ago, there was this temptation of, I can just do this alone. I can grow on my own. He said, actually encourage one another, especially now in the day of his return that is drawing near. Especially as you reach the end, you need each other that much more. And as I say that, and I just leave you with this question. What if church by design was supposed to be a bother? What if it was supposed to disrupt our life? What if it was supposed to cost something and challenge us and force us outside of ourselves? What if it was designed to help us with the questions that really are deepest in our heart? And I think there's two great heart questions people have. The first one is, why am I here? Everybody wants to know, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? And the second great heart question is where do I belong? What's my purpose and who are my people? The problem is we are so busy, we don't even listen to our own hearts anymore. What if God designed church in a way, this movement of God, of what he's doing on the planet, that matches the core needs of what we long for? The church doesn't get in the way of life. It actually unleashes real life. The life that my heart longs for of why am I here and where do I belong? Wouldn't you want to be a part of a church that helped unleash that? See, I believe that's what God designed all along. And I'd encourage you over the next couple of weeks as we wrestle with this, Come, come wrestle with us. Come, let's see it again. Let's step back and answer the questions that our hearts long for so deeply. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for church and I thank you for this church. I thank you for the privilege it is to do life with these people. Lord, I pray. I pray for those who've been hurt by the church. I pray that uh, you would heal them, but we would love them well. Lord, I pray where we get scared and we pull back from the hard questions that we would embrace what you're doing. Lord, I pray that we would be a people humble before you, unleashed by you, to represent you in this world as the beautiful God that you are. Lord, we pray this and we know this is true 
because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And we pray this in his name. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.